0: Greetings from Shattern State College, and welcome to The Farcast. This is our, our first episode, and basically what we're going to try to do with this is it's a podcast where our mission is to get to know the people of CSC better. Today's guest is Dr. Kurt Kinbacher. I'm Alex Helmbrecht, and I'm joined today by Daniel Binkert. We both work in college relations. Uh, Dr. Kurt Kinbacher, an associate professor of history. What does that mean? Is that how you introduce yourself right off the bat? No. <laughs> Usually you say, hi, I'm Kurt. Okay. Okay. I, I just didn't know, you know, once you receive that doctor status, you know, do you, do you tell that to everyone? Is it included on oh, your correspondence? And... Well, like right away, it's like, whoa!
1: <laughs> but after a while, I mean, I tell my students, and some of them actually listen, you said that it's an anthropology experiment, because I teach those classes as well. It's like, what's the the culture of Shadron State College, or all colleges, or are we a rank society? Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, they try to figure out how to address me.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's kind of a, an interesting thing to navigate at, at times. I know that I've been referred to as in emails like, Doctor, Dear Dr. Helmbrecht thank you for sending the notice about the cancellations. And I, So it, it almost seems like it's uh, just part of the culture that it, uh, students want to engage with the, the professionals of the campus. And so that's, they're just being respectful. Yeah,
1: yeah. And how they become respectful, I mean, it could be any number of ways. I mean, I have, I've had students who, like, experiment with calling me by my first name until they need a letter of recommendation, <laughs> and then the conversation changes. But, you know, it's, you know I think hard for them, too, um, who's a Mr. or a Ms., or a, how do they want to be addressed. But, right. But, you know, you generally don't go around, hey, associate professor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true. Or yeah, Mr. Director. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. So you mentioned anthropology. You also teach world history uh, in courses in the ancient world and East Asia. Can you elaborate on those a little bit? Kind of give us the the, the quick synopsis of what you do
1: of of that part of the world since the beginning of time. <laughs> that's about it. You know, I start at like Big Bang and work my way
0: forward. <laughs> Um, and that occurred in East Asia, right? <laughs> <laughs> just west of that, I think. Oh, just, okay. Just, yeah. okay. Uh,
1: well, I, I, in many ways, I was hired to, um, you know, world history is like a, such a big box. So fundamentally, when they were advertising for this position, Dr. Smith and Nesham, Dr. Nesham were already in place. And they advertised for the rest of the world that they didn't address. And East Asia was one of my strong points, Um, you know, comparatively, if you think about what you can do at a a teaching level. And so um, that's always been a fascination of mine. And uh, a lot went on there. It's not, or still does, really. You know, it's not the first one of these big urban-based agriculture societies, but, you know, they never lose track of their history there. And so it makes them really exciting to study.
0: So, so teaching about East Asia in, in a place such as Shatter, Nebraska, what are some of the similarities?
1: Um, well, they're agrarian, at least as, as they start. And it, you know, when I was I was just talking about China before I came over here today and you can, making comparisons is, is, you know, China emerges in their Yellow River Valley, which is low soil. You know, and most of our students are from around here and know about Iowa and eastern Nebraska, what the soils look like. Um, Some people are from Washington State. They you know, Palouse low soil. Um, They understand that kind of stuff, you know, pretty readily. The climate is similar. We're on a very similar latitude. Um, Just trying to, you know, you can build those comparisons. Uh, The space can be imagined, I think. The culture is not... Readily imaginable. But I think it's still important for Nebraska. I mean, the second and third largest economies in the world after ours are China and Japan, and they are historically, in recent history, big markets for Nebraska products. So knowing about them is probably a good thing. I think we want to continue to sell beef and beans and.
0: Yeah, certainly. I can, Kawasaki
1: I can, parts, you know, things yeah, like that. Definitely. Yeah, definitely.
0: There, there is that connection. Uh, how, how many times have you traveled to China and Japan?
1: Um, just once. That's a long way away. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. So now I've, um, uh, not traveled extensively in Asia. Um, but I have, uh, been over there and, um, you know, really enjoyed my stay. People are lovely. Very, very polite people.
0: Nice. Well, that, that's another similarity to Nebraska.
1: That's true. Polite. And the, the, the tendency to be quiet, um, you know, another characteristic that when, some, when people from outstate come to Nebraska, the, you know, the students aren't talking because, well, they're being polite, you know, the way that they modeled. Um, yeah, so until they get to know you, people are quiet. Sure.
0: So uh, cultural anthropology is another one of the areas that you uh, teach. Can you kind of explain that? What's the, what's the elevator speech on, on what that is? What is anthropology?
1: anthro anthro is humanology is the study of, it's the study of um, existing societies.
0: Okay. Um,
1: How it comes down to, it's, uh, it's, I like it. I think it's a really fun class to teach, and it's not, you know, I have my PhDs in history. My minor field was anthropology. I have the one credit over the minimum of anthropology to be teaching at the undergraduate level, so, uh, uh, you know is excited to have an opportunity to you know even deal with it on a regular basis but it 's uh you know when the discipline started, they were studying so called primitive people because they thought that modernity in the late nineteenth century when the disciplines found it was going to overtake all of these other cultures and we 'd all be assimilated into some sort of western amalgaman. Um but it 's not really worked out that way um, so it 's you know. Looking at the culture through the window that that culture is,
0: okay. which,
1: it, you know, in Shadron is, you know, the culture we can study is Shadron State College because it, it has a culture as well. And then we make comparisons to other world cultures through, you know, the kind of the concepts and constructions of, you know, avoid uh, um, things like ethnocentrism and think relativistically if if you're trying to figure out how, you know, Japanese people view the outside world, try to... Think like a Japanese person, which, in true terms, would me you go to tri- Japan to hang out for a really long time and observe. But uh, so our observations are on campus.
0: Okay. So, so how does a, a Shattered State College student or a Shattered State College employee how do, how do they think or view the world? What what, <laughs> what, are, what are what are the uh, the explanations given in in, in your class?
1: Uh, Well, I think they're uncovering the explanations because I'm not going to, you know, lecture them on what the rules of our society are because there are unspoken rules. There are spoken rules and there's unspoken rules. And, you know, the spoken rules are pretty easy to come by. I mean, they're, you know, post it. Don't bring your guns to class. I'll write on the uh, please put your cell phones away. (laughs) Uh, um, On the syllabus, there are rules. You know, know, my rule is respect, but then I publish all the other rules that are required of an academic society that I'm asked to put on my syllabus. The ones that I think are interesting for them are what are the unspoken rules. So this last week, they could divine, devise their own experiments, but some students kind of the, you know, if you don't know what else to do, hang out in front
0: of a door and watch the rules. Watch for the rules. Yeah, they'd probably be in action.
1: Uh, well, I mean, just think of, you know, politeness. I mean, yeah, action opening the door or not. <laughs> you know, again, and there's sure. also time of day and if you know, people are scrambling to get to their classes on time. But, I mean, there are certainly rules that uh, we negotiate. and these are enculturated and we've learned these and we kind of unpack, you know, what they are. Um, at least to start, that's the first thing we, mm-hmm. we've uh, been accomplishing. Later on, we'll talk about... Um, Stratification, social stratification, if it exists. You know, the American ideas that were flat, everyone's the same. You know, egalitarianism, which is you know, like a noble thing, but it's, uh, it's more complex than that. I mean, just think of, you know, students come in as freshmen, and they, um, by the last semester, they're here, they're seniors, there's a difference. Does it matter to the students? I'm not sure, so I let them, you know, kind of get that idea. I think they know. Um, I don't think they necessarily lord it over people. Same thing goes on in the faculty ranks uh, you know in uh, Asia and Japan we would you know if we were to meet or I was to meet you know say Dr Ryan, uh, we would bow to each other he would bow not very deeply, and I would bow a little bit more deeply than him um, just based on rank and status. We don't do that here, but the, there's still behaviors that might be observable
0: sure so. And have, have you noticed, uh, uh, I guess, a change in those sort of unspoken social rules throughout your career as a, as a professor here?
1: No. I mean, I've only been here six years. So they generally not, kind of stay the same. Uh, well, I mean, that's not very long in times of cultural history. Sure. Um, yeah. I've talked to, uh, you know, some people are here for a really long time, including— um, you know, people who are students and come back and then work here, and they remember their days of the you know, students before cell phones, and you know how it was as you're going down the double walk, and everyone is, you know, hello walk, you know, and uh, now everyone's going, ah, ah, you know, um, yeah. and there are unspoken rules about that too. Sure. <laughs> um, but I mean, six years is uh, you know culture moves at a pretty rapid pace, but not, you know, we're observing. Yeah. I don't think that fast. So I've not uh, not.
0: Um, Yet. Well, we may have to check with you in another six years.
1: <laughs> we'll see. <yeah. laughs>
0: um, so, so you mentioned earlier uh, you you got your PhD. That was at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. Y- yes. Um, and you have three degrees from UNL. Two. Oh, two. Okay. Um, so, do you consider yourself a Husker or an Eagle? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good you can be
1: both. You know, the identity <laughs> is also part of my work, and the identities are are not. I mean, they sh- they they can shift. It's, you know, it's not quite code switching, but I mean, on any given day, you are uh, a Shadron State Eagle. You know, here we are. Um, I'm a taxpayer in Nebraska, a citizen of Nebraska. I went to the University of Nebraska, and uh, you know, grew up in Lincoln. Absolutely, I'm a Cornhusker, but I'm also an Eagle, um, and a whole lot of other things, depending on what hat I need to put on that day or where I am. If I traveled abroad, I'd be. You know, some tall American guy, tallish. You know, if you go to Japan, you're tall. <laughs>
0: I need to go visit there, then. <laughs> I, I think you do.
1: I, I would recommend it to everybody. You know, you know.
0: Um, Kurt, when did you know that you wanted to teach? I'll let you know. <laughs> well, that's like you know, I
1: didn't plan on doing this. But you know, I think what, what is, uh, well, Dr. Ryan says it sometimes, we don't really know what they're gonna do after they graduate for jobs. The jobs aren't invented yet. Um, so I think you know, when I was growing up, the concept was, oh, you'll have five careers. Um, I don't know that everything I did is really a career. Um, so after undergraduate, I thought I wanted to go to law school, but I wasn't sure, so I got a job as a paralegal, Then I was sure. I really thought that researching law was fascinating, but the practice of law required business acumen that I hadn't developed and didn't think I was capable of. And uh, went on to uh, start an education career in um, public education and got those credentials, but then drifted into youth work—you know, drop-in youth work—and. 4-H bicycle camp and, you know, other stuff. So I didn't actually teach in the classroom. And uh, I don't think I really wanted to at that time. You know, um, and then when I was in my mid-30s, I thought I needed to uh, quit being a bike messenger, which is pays way better than youth work, and get a handle on things. So I went back to grad school when I was almost 40 and uh, did the master's. And then I was taught right after that and was you know, sure. I mean, that was the right course i was ready i don't think i could have sit still when i was in my early 20s to do graduate school you know i needed to paint houses for a while
0: um so it kind of took you a while to find your career but now that you've found it you're, you're comfortable with it what do you enjoy most about it um
1: i like to interact with students i like to be in the classroom and i like to um Meet students about academic things in the library or in my office hours. I mean, what drives it is um, that's rewarding for me, okay. that's fun for me, and that allows me to um, read extensively about these subjects and uh, you know stay abreast of things. Yeah, that, that um, you know if you're going to become a professor, it's still pretty much driven because you enjoy the interactions with students. Sure, you know you get to see them grow so fast that's intellectually. That's what I tell them when they're freshmen. You yeah, know, it might seem like a lot of reading now, but you're going to read, like, multiply, you know, what is it, geometric growth in your reading capacity by the time you're a senior.
0: And one of the things you enjoy studying is Mari Sandoz, and you have involvement with the, the Mari Sandoz Conference and uh, the, the Pilster Lecture Series. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Um, one of the reasons I was excited when this job opening came up and thought I'd apply for it is the, the Sandoz Society is, you know, housed over in the former library, you know, the, the, that really cool building that was, uh, um, um, who's the rich guy? Car- that was a Carnegie Library, yeah.
0: wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it was in that style. It wasn't specifically okay. a Carnegie Library, but, yeah, it, it followed those okay, cues. Okay, so they went for it. Yeah. That's what
1: libraries look like, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I'd been to the conference when I was uh, working on my PhD, and I said, well, that's a pretty good thing. And um, actually, my advisor was the... Uh, PhD advisor was doing the programming for it when I came back here. And then, well, he said maybe I should do it. So, (laughs) you know, once your advisor, always your advisor. Um, So, you know, I was excited to take on those administrative tasks, although, I'm not the best at administrative tasks, but we got some good speakers coming in, and every year there's a theme behind this. And, you know, the Pilster family was so generous when they donated the proceeds of their ranch sale to, you know, finance all of these, you know, amazing opportunities for students. To, and we bring in um, people, you know, really big-shot scholars to come in. This year's Pilster lecture is Charles Postel, who is a uh, uh, historian of renown about the populist era, that agrarian political revolt from the 1890s and the early 1900s. Uh, I've never heard him speak, but his writing is fabulous. Um, and I've been corresponding with him to get him out here, and he's like just such a gentleman and easy to work with, and he won you know, the Bancroft Prize, which is like our version of the Pulitzer. I mean, he's the big shot. So we're just excited to bring someone of that caliber onto campus, and they're just so excited to come here and talk about what they do. So we got him coming um, Thursday the nineteenth at seven thirty in the ballroom for free. (laughs) Get that plug in. Y'all come. All right, it is September nineteenth. September nineteenth. Yep. So you know he is a you know world class uh, historical scholar coming to you know give a lecture on what he knows and loves best, and he's going to pull it in you know um, because. Um, you know, the Sandoz world is you know, built, if you're thinking about old Jules and when Mari was you know, living in this part of the world during this era. So he's going to try to pull it into you know, the local as well. So I think he's excited to come here. Um, and then on Friday, all day Friday the 20th, we have speakers coming in. They're um, going to start the day with uh, an, another populist scholar from the University of Nebraska, Kearney. Who's, he's talked here before. He's great. Um, he is uh, Jeff Wells. And then at 10, rather, we're trying to get this so that the students can come and go as their class schedule because they can just drop in as free to the students. Um, Mary Clay Jones, who's a professor of English here, and Chris Steinke, who's a professor of history at Kearney, are going to do a, a little panel about one of the books she wrote about politics. Um, so that should be uh, interesting. And then at 11, Maria Munoz, who is a... Uh, historian of Latin American populism from Susquehanna University out in Pennsylvania. She has some familiarity with Nebraska. She uh, did her master's at UNL um, and uh, we're glad that she's coming out to join us. So that will give a different view of uh, global populism. Some say we're in a populist era globally of of, of, uh, leadership right at the moment. So there might be some parallels that people can ask questions about. At one thirty, we would take a little different bent. We're bringing in Graham Christensen, who is a—he's uh, a farmer. You know, he's in Nebraska. He was out in Oakland, Nebraska. He's like, said, "I'm going to come, even though I should be harvesting." <laughs> but uh, you know, he's—he's he's got a couple of things going on. He's about a regenerative agriculture here on the Great Plains, and uh, got a little corporation called revolt um which is you know it's the volts the important thing it's about um, solar power i mean how do you generate electricity to run your your operations in an affordable way in a sustainable way so it should be pretty pretty exciting i hope we're able to draw some of the rangeland folks and i invited the ffa over at chadron high but you know Class hour. I'm not sure what's going to go down. And then round it out with a panel led by Dave Nasham, uh, my colleague in history. With uh, Well, he's there, but mostly it's his students who are doing the talking. So a panel of shattering students at 3 o'clock. And then if anyone needs something to do Saturday morning, 9.30 at the Bean Broker, uh, Lisa Pollard, who is another um, scholar from our state, is going to come and talk about populism and Sandoz. So that rounds it out. That's more than you wanted to know, but that's the full program. No, I I think it's interesting.
0: It really has something for a lot of different academic disciplines. And I'm sure that a lot of students are interested in at least one of those lectures. And any of my
1: students out there, remember, you can go and write it up for extra credit. (laughs) (laughs) That always helps the attendance. Absolutely.
0: What dates are those again?
1: Uh, The Pilster Lecture is on the 19th of September. The Sandoz Conference on campus is all day Friday over in the Sandoz Center. And then uh, Saturday, there is a 930 lecture. Um, You know, get some coffee and see what Lisa Pollard has to say.
0: And and all of those are free and open? For students,
1: they are free and open.
0: Wonderful. Yep, absolutely
1: and for the public the pilster lecture is free and open and the bean event is free and open otherwise if you want to come for the full program as uh, there's lunch included it's not particularly onerous uh i don't know the i think 50 bucks
0: and they and they can contact you if uh interested.
1: they can go to the Mari Sando's Heritage Society and they can register okay yeah Okay. And I, I'm sure that uh, there'll be someone there who would take their money at the door as well. But it'd be easier, you we, we know, who to you know, invite, the, you know, how many people for lunch if they register in advance, but we won't turn people away.
0: Okay, good. And how many years has the conference been going on? Do you
1: know? Well, since long before I got here. I mean, there are <laughs> like, posters back from the, you know, they had, like, uh, George McGovern here, and it might have been early 2000. Um, but sometime in the 1990s, um, Originally, the Sandoz Society was housed over in Gordon, uh, and then eventually it finds its way to, you know, our campus. Um, and, you know, as a historian, I should have a more definitive set of dates. I don't.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I, I think the I want to say the Sandoz Center opened in the early 2000s. Early. It might have been. Yeah, early 2000s sounds about right. yeah wonderful building though and yeah. if, if people haven't had a chance to, to go through it it's it's fantastic the coffee gallery down in the basement is really good and um, there's always interesting art shows going on in there so
1: and Trudy Denham uh, in the yeah. art department her work is on display right now yeah. and it's uh yeah. Uh, he has an art critic, which you know, is outstanding, but <laughs> and take that with a, uh, I don't know much about art, but I'm sure you know, she's good. I mean, it is fascinating just, you
0: know, to see that, that working in sand, because we haven't seen that yeah. kind of uh, work, at least uh, not in the last few years here. Yeah. It's uh, exciting to see that variety.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it is uh yeah, it's a lot different than uh, you know, last year you know, when Mary and Laura also in the art num put put up their stuff. I mean, they were working in painting and photography. Yeah. So, you know, it's you know fun to be on this campus because there's so many different disciplines and talents. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It'll be up for a while. It'll be up uh I don't have the exact dates, but you know, everyone should
0: you know walk through, have a look. Yeah, certainly. And even with the uh the Sheldon Art Exhibit that's open in M Hall right now. It's a there's a I think it's a there's a beer over there which if you've ever been to the National Portrait Gallery um in Washington DC, they have that huge one of uh I think it's the Sierra Nevada and with the big couch in front of it. And this that one's not here, but there is one of his pieces over there which is really wonderful.
1: And he painted out here too. I mean he's got uh, Lakota villages and there mm-hmm. he's got a chimney rock in there even. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, so, Kurt, one of your other interests—you uh, even wrote a book on it—was human migration. Can you talk a little bit about that, and specifically, kind of, in Nebraska? Uh,
1: yeah, I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, those days. Um, you know, kind of what drives my—you know—scholarly interest is is both migration and place. You know. Uh, And what I tell students is that land shapes lives. I mean, part of our culture develops around our economies, which are initially driven by land. Um, And sometimes people get like these really deep connections to place, and their identity gets wrapped around it. And you certainly see that around here. I mean, people who've been here for generations are, you know, how long you've been here? Oh, forever. (laughs) You know, um, and it really, you know, kind of generates a sense of pride and. belonging and but people are just mobile and it's always just amazed me you I mean, just think about human settlement on the you know the earth walking out of africa and any zone that a human being can live in is populated um and what causes people to pick up and move uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, rich scholarship that uh, an interest in it i mean they have to quit being who they are and um uh, sort of, and find a new place, uh, sometimes because you know, kind of when immigration scholars think of it as like a push and a pull. So how do people get to Nebraska? Well, some people come um, because they're refugees. I mean, whatever is going in, in their home place is not good, and they're coming um, out of, you know, sheer fright to get away. And then uh, um, some people are pulled here, and it's usually a combination of the two. So the idea is uh, you, there. Are, there's opportunity here. It could be economic opportunity. It could be educational opportunities for their children. So, the, you know, these things that... That you know draw people into it, and it's it's never ending. It's not just modern immigration into a built United States, but if you think about Lakota people, they were pulled onto the plains because of this big, huge protein reservoir of bison, and built a culture that they um, was similar intellectually to the one they had in Minnesota when they were wild rice gatherers into buffalo culture. Um, same thing happened when um, Europeans began joining. Well, even if you look at the um, people already in America that settle Nebraska there, kind of the pattern is this lateral movement. So uh, people that are here, I mean, if we look at the census, you're going to find Ohio, Illinois, Pennsylvania, kind of that latitude thing we were just talking about with China. You know, you, it makes sense if you're going to be a farmer. <laughs> you understand the seasons at least. Uh, and then when uh, Europeans begin um, dropping in, and that's you know about the same time, it's, you know they're also latitudinal, or at least uh, climate zone. Um, Got a lot of Germans, Um, Danes, Swedes, some people from Iceland. (laughs) I can't imagine there. Well, there's that one, what is it? One little former town down on Highway 2. Has anyone been there?
0: Any bells
1: there's like a historical marker. These, this oh. town was founded by people from Iceland yeah. on the railroad, and I'm sure yeah, they, they absorbed themselves into the surrounding Danish population, I guess, um, Irish. I mean, but uh, you know, you're not well, we, you know there certainly there's some Italian names on campus. My inclination is they didn't come to farm, but uh, you know mine out in Wyoming or something. But you know people are finding those patterns into places where they presumed they'll do better and that there's some, at least, spatial familiarity. You know, like the German-Russians came and brought their turkey red wheat because it grows here. Um, so those patterns are, are pretty amazing to me, um, just to see, and just the way they settle. I mean, we when I was um, doing some research, and uh, when I was a graduate student, we took some <coughs> um, counties that were settled by... Some of the land in Nebraska was um, given to the railroads essentially as payment for them to build the roads, and then they sold it to settlers. And and we could trace that land at the time and not the homestead land yet. That's been digitized now. But you'll find entire villages or like little sections of... You know, farms in Clay County, Nebraska, and they're all from the same place in Ohio or the same place in Russia. It's just kind of this these communities
0: that pick up and move for the opportunity. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I suppose it makes sense. I mean, even now you would feel comfortable being surrounded by family or friends or, or people you grew up with. And so when you're starting a settlement, you want to be surrounded with some type of food.
1: And that works the same way with a Vietnamese population that moves to Nebraska after the uh, Vietnam War, and you know that whole country, the Republic of Vietnam, ceases to exist, and some people flee, um, and they get resettled. You know, each of the fifty states takes some. Uh, a lot of them congregate into Nebraska because it doesn't look at all like Vietnam, uh, but um, there are advantages. Uh, um, you know, they're urban by this time. They're not going to take up rice farming in Nebraska, nor can they get the land. But uh, homes are affordable. Education system strong. Uh, the economy is generally pretty good. I mean, there is opportunity um, that continues to draw people globally into our area. Um, you know, uh, there's a pull to it. You know, and, you know, immigration's a difficult thing, especially if people come like, you know, As refugees, they don't really have much. But typically speaking, the second generation, kind of the pattern, and this is true for most of American immigration history, the first generation, they struggle. I mean, they get established. um, They don't starve. Uh, It's really their children who are going to live those dreams their parents had in mind. They're going to get education. They're going to... careers and kind of the you know this mobility launching of the that first generation so really they set up their children you know, in many ways and that's also a really cool story
0: yeah I've always I've always just thought how lucky I am that, that things were set settled in my life prior to me being born and so it really your parents set you up for success and you're so right they, they want uh, you to have the success that they never could and, or that they didn't have. And so, um, yeah, seeing that in action with immigration is wonderful. Yeah. And we call that,
1: you know, privilege, you know, it's yeah. like, you know. I grew up in a family that there was no question I was going to go to college. Um, they just planned for it. Well, my dad was an academic, but, you know, his parents weren't, and their parents uh, didn't speak English. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, it just kind of, you know, works its way you know, forward generationally. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the power of place. Once you are able to establish yourself in a place, a lot of good things can happen. And then if they're not, people move on because that's what we do.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Now, one of the items you mentioned was mobility and kind of cruising along Highway too. I, I think for anyone who knows you, they know you're not cruising along in a Chevy Malibu. You're on two wheels and, and on a bicycle.
1: I bicycled that road. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: How important is is bicycle to to you, or bicycling to you? And, and talk a little bit about just that as part of your life. I, I mean, it's it's got to make going to meetings across the state a little bit longer.
1: It does. <laughs> right. It does, but, you know, in the summer, you got all the time in the world as a academic, you know, the, our classes in the summer are online. <laughs> you can do that anywhere. Uh, I, uh, yeah, sometime in my, I've always had a bicycle. I mean, I think most kids grow up, learn how to ride a bike. I had a paper out when I was a kid, back when kids had that, and I had a very great big black Schwinn, and I would ride down the middle of the street and throw papers on people's roofs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there wasn't the plan, yeah. but they got up there, that and, was the um, best job.
1: <laughs> and then uh, you know, with that money, I bought a ten-speed, a you know, and that was like really cool. And I just have just always just loved to ride. And when I when I was uh, fourteen, my other buddies and I were gonna told our parents, we're gonna ride all the way to Colorado. <laughs> And our parents said, "Eh, no. (laughs) But it kind of never left my mind. And, you know, then when I was in my early 20s, um, I'm kind of a restless person. I mean, I haven't been able, I don't sit still very well. And I was thinking I wanted to run marathons. And then I hurt my knee um, because I have the body of a bear, not a marathon (laughs) runner. And then I, I got a bike and just continued. And Uh, You know, some people ride their bikes long distances with all their camping gear on it, and that looked sort of intriguing. So I bought a bike and strapped a bunch of camping gear on it and rode across Wisconsin. I was living in Minnesota at the time, and that was very satisfactory. Uh, And then I just kept riding. So in 1987, I rode across the country because... Well, maybe you've seen those guys. They ride Highway 20.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: um, yeah. I'm on a, a listserv. I'm in an organization where I host um, cross-country bicyclists. Um, and you know, you know, know, they tell me their stories. And I tell them how to get across Nebraska without too many flat tires and where the good camping spots are. And uh, if you get to so-and-so town, you want to eat in so-and-so restaurant. And you know, the the manager of the Ainsworth grocery store is a cyclist. If you're having a hard time, he can help you out. Um, Uh, And, uh, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, early 30s, I rode a lot of tours. I would, you know, I was a bike messenger, so I would uh, resign from my job and, uh, you know, spend three weeks riding around Europe. Three weeks, three months. (laughs) Three months riding around Europe. uh, And then, um, well, then, like, Then what I what I find is people riding across the country are either in their twenties, or in their fifties and sixties. So I think you guys know what happens in between. A lot of things happen, but it's not um, recreation. You got other uh, midlife things you got to accomplish, and then people take off again. So I'm getting getting. I am at that other end. I am taking off again. So the last four years I've been like touring extensively again. Um, A lot of it in Nebraska, but I mean I get farther afield than that. So. it's just enjoyable, um, and uh, satisfies my need to move and see things. And it's actually not expensive to do it. Did that? What What question did you ask? Well, just a, <laughs> just in a, a, a roundabout
0: way to get you to talk about the bike ride and, um, and how much you enjoy it. And what like what's a typical day when you're when you're touring? How far do you ride? You look for a place to camp. If it's raining, what do you do? Just stop over and find some shelter.
1: Well, I have a job now, so I going to sleep summer.
0: indoors. <laughs> I
1: mean, you know, the kind of the difference between when I was in my twenties, when you'd actually leave your job, and when you got to, you know, you're on per diem. You gotta, yeah, you got to budget it out. And if there's going to be a crappy day, you're going to be out in the rain. Today, I can stay in a hotel, <laughs> which is you know really nice. Yeah, but, sure. Uh, um, really uh a typical day. Um well, you know, I'm I just turned 60, so I've am um, um, you know thinking hard about, you know, I gotta ride across the country again because you know I only got nineteen more years statistically left. I better do it while I'm standing <laughs> well. Um and comfortably right now, um 60, 70 miles. Um some days, like when the wind's blowing really hard and you're riding into it, it's like phew, none. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, 30 to the next town, and I'm mm-hmm. gonna you know just you know take the rest of the day. But you know, 60, 70 miles every day is pretty comfortable. I can still bang out 100 occasionally if needed. It's you know, it uh, you know, like the first 40 miles come pretty easy. Um, can be a little bit of work after that, and then when you get above 70, it sometimes. Um, Sometimes it's not as much fun. <laughs> time, time for the ice bath. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like that, but uh, um, yeah, if, you know, if there's a shower on the other end of it, that kind of makes it worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, Sometimes, uh, and then you know, Nebraska's great because a lot of the little towns have campgrounds like in town, which is you know, the mm. state parks are fantastic too. But um, if you're just thinking about Nebraska camping in like Cody, you know, you got nice campground, you got a bar and grill next door, go get a cheeseburger, see what the locals are up to. I mean, they're kind of eating your way across Nebraska on cheeseburgers. Um, well, not for the, everybody. You're burning <laughs> the calories. So you know. I think I calc- we tried to calculate that once when I was like younger and rode even more miles. It's like when I rode cross country 75, 80 was average. Um, I don't know how we came up with this, but you, you just really can't eat that much. Um, well, you can, but <laughs> maybe 6,000 calories a day if you're really hot on it. Um, wow. I think my metabolism <laughs> has slowed a little on. bit since then, yeah. but you, you need to eat, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when the people come through that are touring, it's like, you know, they want... <laughs> food, they want to shower, they want to do their laundry, and they want some Wi-Fi, and everything else doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Kind of gets down to you know, just a few basics of what you know, human comfort could be.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that, that Wi-Fi has kind of elevated itself into a, a, ne- sure a necessity. That's true. Well,
1: well when, I, when I wrote across the country in 1987, you no know, Wi-Fi. Um, I just wrote postcards. Mm-hmm. And then like my dad uh, at work had a map and put a postcard. You know, and people at my work I was coming back to put postcards. Where so are you at? But, you know, I didn't... I think I called, you know, a few people over the course of a couple months, but, you know, phone calls were expensive, too. You know, yeah. you're looking for a phone booth and all the quarters and, you yeah. know, so... No, it's, you know, that is a little bit different scene because some people are navigating just by their things we call phones right now, mm-hmm. um, which aren't always accurate. And a, a Chinese... Um, Person, young man riding from, I think, Southern California. He was heading to Boston. And he was, I still don't know what road he was on, but um, he didn't have wide tires. And he was on some dirt road that appeared to be a shortcut on the map, and he couldn't ride any farther. And, uh, you know, some nice rancher, and, you know, that's the great thing out here. And, you know, put him in a truck and took him back to the highway and, (laughs) you know, told him how to get to (laughs) Shadron.
0: Oh, that was nice. You got that helping hand.
1: Yeah, that happens a lot. I mean, people are just very kind.
0: Um, So one of the classes that I think you're currently working on developing, or maybe it already is developed, is uh, a bike ride across America or parts of America. Um, You'd like to maybe start that. Is it next summer or the summer after?
1: Oh, this is still still not fully approved. Oh, okay. 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 But it's been run up the flagpole. Um, I decided that I needed to ride across the country again. And I went and, you know, so um, it's a little bit, you know, the logistics, you know, to make it easy, you leave here, Mm -hmm. ride east to Washington, D.C., take a train all the way across to the other side, you know, Portland or Seattle, and then ride back here. Um, Simple, right? Yeah, Um, in theory. Yeah, in (laughs) theory. So I'm doing it. I'm leaving. I'm leaving in May of 2021, and I'm going to ride. And I went and saw my dean and said, could this be a class? And I thought, well, this isn't going to go anywhere. He said, yeah. And uh, Charles thought, Snare thought, well, probably. <laughs> Our risk management has said probably and uh, needs a little bit more approval, and then I need to f- see if students even care. Wow! And so that's where that's at. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, um, I, it I've got, sounds uh, interesting. I have some help. Uh, the Professor Jones and Professor Jones, I ride with them quite a lot. I've said that they would... You know, if we can get it together, um, also ride.
0: So it would be kind of a interdisciplinary...
1: Interdisciplinary road. academic bike ride across the United States. Wow. If it happens. If it happens. <laughs> well, I mean,
0: I, I think that there would definitely be interest for it from, from students. Well,
1: we'll see. You know, I hope that's true. But again, it's like, you know, it's, you know, there's more bikes this year than there have been in past years. Yeah. I've Although this more. is like a fantastic place to cycle, um. Not that many people do it. Mm-hmm. You know, a few people, Dr. Ryan. Yeah. Um. I see. Um, Don, Dr. King rides. Um. Dr. McCallum. I see coming to work on his mountain bike. Uh. But you know, student biking.
0: Eh, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Well, good luck on it, and, <laughs> and, and hopefully, you can get that enrollment. And and if not, maybe you like you said, you'll get a bunch of. Twenty-year-olds, so that would be the student demographic, and maybe you'll even get some of those older students who just want to take it for fun.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'm going.
0: <laughs>
1: Whether it's a class or not, that's you know, uh, I leave in May, 2021. Okay. You know. All
0: right. Well, put it on the calendar, Dan. <laughs> I'll send you some <laughs> postcards. <laughs> I'm, I'm more, am uh, more open to the six thousand calorie intake a day <laughs> thing <laughs> than I can't go wrong. <laughs> um, so, Kurt, we have a few minutes left, and um, I kind of want to just do some, some quick hitting questions um, just to kind of help people get to know you a little bit better. You can talk about your favorites or, or whatever you want. But um, So I'm going to go through these kind of quick.
1: Okay, so, you'll get quick answers. All right. Lightning round. All right, yeah, exactly. Lightning <laughs> round.
0: The, the far round or something. I don't know. we got to figure something I like out. like that. Yeah. We need to get some well, sponsorship. Well, if we go ready. outside
1: today, we might see some lightning rounds. Yeah,
0: that's true. That's true. Uh, so, begin. Uh, what's a favorite movie? Of yours. Seven Samurai. Oh, okay. Okay. First concert you attended? A nitty-gritty dirt
1: band at the Buffalo County Fairgrounds.
0: In Kearney, right? In Carney. If Shatter State College wasn't the name, what would you name the college?
1: I saw, I, I would rename our mascot. Not that I don't love the Eagles. I'd call us the Speed Goats.
0: The Speed Goats. <laughs>
1: Why is that? Well, we got a lot of them out here. <laughs> There's a lot of schools called the Eagles, and although we got Eagles, too, I saw a bald and a Golden this weekend, um, nobody's calling themselves the Speed Goats.
0: That is very true. Yeah, yeah the, uh, I've always liked their, I think it's Delta State, uh, their Division II school. They go by the Fighting Okra. <laughs> a
1: speed goat could take one of those down <laughs> <No>. <laughs> with just one hoof <laughs> uh,
0: what's one of your favorite bike rides in dawes county oh uh, it depends on which way the
1: wind's blowing um i'm riding the gravel roads uh these days um sometimes just riding up ormish road to south dakota like right out main street onto the dirt road that's a fun ride Uh, There's a a great little loop ride I like to do that um, takes me to uh, up Country Club over Buttermilk, Dead Horse, by the Hawthorne guy's place, up Airport Road, and then back by the airport onto the highway. Um, Great rides. This is a fun part of the country to ride in.
0: What is the craziest thing that's ever happened to you on a bike trip? Nothing ever crazy happens. (laughs) Well, that's think, I was thinking, that's like, good.
1: you know, what happens that's really weird. Sometimes it's just weird, you know, like a really good way. Like when I wandered into Hungary from a, a what's now Slovakia, it's like the guy at the border crossing took my passport, and I thought I was in deep trouble. And then he came back because he needed to learn how to say good morning in English. And then it just got weirder. <laughs> you know, I ended up uh, in a, a um, well, Hungary. <laughs> the quick answer. This is the lightning round. Weird in Hungary, and I recommend it.
0: (laughs) Um, We didn't get a chance to talk about some of your other interests, but I I know you have other interests: uh, fishing and playing banjo. Um, What's one of the best fish recipes you have?
1: Uh, I'm a fly fisherman. I put them back, catch and release.
0: Okay, so the recipe is let them go. (laughs) Let them go. Okay, and finally, this is important for anyone who works at Shattern State College or lives in Shattern. How many times have you been to the top of Sea Hill?
1: Well, at least a hundred. When I got here, I had a, um, an aging Airedale dog, but she was really active all the way through her early teens and she wanted to be up there once a week to see what was going on. So um, that was one of our favorite stomping grounds when I still had her.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Kurt. Kurt I really appreciate uh, taking the time today and, and visiting with us and You've been a wonderful guest, and thank you. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure.